0: Hi, this is Bill Kristol. I wanted to encourage you to take a look at my free weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for below while you listen to this podcast. Each Monday, I'll try to fill you in on what's happening behind the scenes in Washington, what I think is worth reading, and what the Weekly Standard staff is up to. And thanks for tuning in to the Weekly Standard podcast. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Uh, Philip Terzian here, editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast about the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard and this week we are looking at the June 9th issue and the section uh, begins with a piece by James Bowman, the well-known film critic and scholar, author of Honor, a History and a friend of the Weekly Standard and and occasional contributor. Uh, Jim has a Review of a new biography of Jonathan Swift, author of *The Tale of a Tub*, *Gulliver's Travels*, um, other famous uh, late seventeenth eighteenth century works, uh, entitled *Jonathan Swift: His Life and His World* by Leo Damrosch from Yale Press. Damrosch is a professor of English at the University of Virginia, and. Swift is one of those figures, although he died in the mid 18th century, he's um, and was a satirist uh, essentially. He's one of those figures who has lived on in posterity partly because his satire often means to any particular generation what that generation uh, wants and so he's He's kind of an evergreen figure in English literature. And and his satire, which seems shocking in some epochs, is uh, common sense in others, but still always interesting and always fresh. And Swift himself was an immensely, if I may use the word, peculiar individual. And I don't say that pejoratively, but he was the dean of... Um, he was an Anglican dean in Dublin, which is why he is sometimes referred to in more arcane texts as Dean Swift. But um, uh, he had one of those um, curious and contradictory private lives, which are often uh, of uh, greater interest to biographers than the work that their subjects do. And in Swift's case, as as Jim Bowman points out, um, this, to some degree... It, Benefits Swift because a generation ago um, when Irvin Aaron Prize did his um, multi-volume biography of Jonathan Swift, which was published in the 1960s, the Vogue in those days, was for deeper sort of Freudian analysis of the mind of the subject. And as Bowman points out, we've moved a little bit beyond that. And... um, uh leo Damrosh's book is is a somewhat more straightforward appreciation of swift the writer as well as an interesting examination of swift the man and of course he does grapple with the problem which you always confront especially with satirists and that is uh what seems funny and witty and erudite and um Uh, clever to one uh, uh, era uh, seems shocking and racist and retrograde and misogynist to another and so there's a lot of discussion to some degree about um, you know is Swift really a 21st century man in 18th century garb or is he really an 18th century man who we're uh, surprised to read in the 21st century but all in all um, a very interesting book and, of course, a very interesting review and a perfect introduction to the subject not only of how biographies treat their subjects, but also of Jonathan Swift, which is always a rewarding thing to read about. Next I have a review uh, by uh, Joshua Gelernter, uh, who's the son of David Gelernter, um a frequent contributor to the Weekly Standard. Um, But Joshua has been writing a fair amount for our section, and this week uh, takes on a book entitled Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe by George Dyson. And the book, uh, it's one of those, uh, shall we say, scholarly um, uh, war histories that's um, far more interesting than you might suspect. It's actually quite interesting. Um, and it involves uh, two very different uh, men of genius of the tw- early 20th century, not so well known, but very important. One, John von Neumann, the uh, mathematician. The other, Alan Turing, the British mathematician. Um, von Neumann was a German a Jewish refugee to the United States who ended up at the Institute for Advanced Study at or in Princeton. Uh, Turing was a British mathematician um, best known, I think, for uh, his work during World War II uh, decrypting the German codes. He had one of those uh, rare and arcane and playful mathematical minds, which is um, very useful at at uh, translating uh, codes or uh, deciphering ancient uh, texts and uh, dead languages and so on. Turing was also a homosexual and uh, about a decade after the war um, got into some legal trouble at a time when uh, homosexuality or at any rate homosexual acts were, were illegal and prosecutable in Britain. And he ran into some legal difficulties and um, committed suicide, so he has something of a he's something of a gay martyr now in the culture, but that's another matter where where um uh, the subject here is how von neumann and Turing uh, separately and in in to some degree in intellectual conjunction uh, did the original thinking and designing that led to the earliest uh, computing machines and computers and one might argue in many respects that the two of them are the joint fathers of computing and computers and the the book itself uh, although it's called Turing's Cathedral uh, tends to emphasize von Neumann a bit more but it's a as I say it's a it's one of those subjects that doesn't sound um, terribly appealing if you're looking for something to read on the on the beach uh, under your umbrella, but in fact, it's an enthralling account of uh, an, an entirely accessible layman's language. And I s- say that as a mathematical illiterate myself, but um, a, a great, uh, fun book to read. Which is followed by a, speaking of reading, by a essay by Joe Queenan um, entitled uh, Scary Stuff and the. Uh, subtitle is you think mrs dalloway is traumatic think again you may know about the growing movement on our campuses to issue trigger warnings um with readings for students of heightened sensitivities in other words if if a novel contains <coughs> excuse me scenes with violence or the n word or um, sexual misogyny or whatever um, that might be disturbing or traumatic or shocking to students, they should be warned beforehand that they might want to gird themselves for the trauma or uh, perhaps even absent themselves from class instead of subjecting themselves to such um, degrading and, um, and uh, insulting experiences. Well, I think I can probably speak for most listeners and certainly most readers in saying this is a little bit uh, cockeyed and just another example of um, sensitivity on our campuses uh, running amok. But Joe Queenan makes a counter argument that, um, in fact, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and he has a number of wonderful examples um Uh, Moby Dick, as he says, um, perhaps should contain a warning that says, may contain upsetting passages about being forced to bed down with a heavily tattooed harpooner. And he takes it from there um, with works as desperate as Beowulf and the Epic of Gilgamesh to Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, Great Expectations, Last of the Mohicans, some of these classic works that you may think are are relatively benign, but to someone with Joe Quinan's sensitivities, they can be um, emotionally, even physically traumatic. I can't recommend this essay more. Um, that is followed by a review by Aram Bakshian, uh, an old Washington hand, former speechwriter for Um, a number of presidents and a friend um, of an interesting book from the Hoover Institution Press called The Crusade Years, 1933-1955, Herbert Hoover's Lost Memoir of the New Deal and its Aftermath, edited by George Nash. George Nash has devoted um, the Hoover biographer and chronicler and scholar of American conservatism, has spent a lot of time Uh, at the Hoover Institution and the manuscripts of former President Herbert Hoover. Hoover, of course, um, was defeated for re-election in 1932, but lived until 1964, another 32 years. And in that time, among his many public activities, he's one of those people who seems to have been busy and productive just about every moment of his life when he wasn't sleeping and lord knows when and if he did sleep but he also just wrote voluminously of course he wrote the three volumes of memoirs he wrote polemics he wrote books he wrote speeches he edited collections of his speeches and he also wrote and wrote and wrote about his the contemporary uh, world and these have now when he died in nineteen sixty four these were some of them he had he had gotten into uh, some sort of shape for publication. Some shorter pieces like his very charming book on on fishing um, uh, were published in his lifetime along with others. but um, this particular volume is um, a memoir of of Hoover's uh, political involvement after 1932. He was, of course, a well-known public antagonist of the New Deal. He was then active in in the Republican Party, especially in questions of foreign policy. Uh, very active during World War II, and of course, after World War II, he, uh, to some degree, um, repeated his experience in World War One, where he became really famous, uh, world famous for his efforts to feed the starving and displaced in Belgium and other places that had been affected by the war. Well, after World War II, the problem was um, even larger and more widespread and in some ways more acute. And Hoover was in the thick of, of relief efforts and humanitarian efforts in the late 40s. And then, and then Harry Truman, who was, the of course, the president in the late 1940s and early 50s, uh, brought in Truman, um, as a consultant, uh, the famous Hoover Commissions, which were created to um, examine the federal government and whether it could be uh, streamlined or improved or de-bureaucratized or what have you came into being. And so Hoover had a very active public life um, after his presidency and until his death at the age of 90. Um, But as I say, he left this all in great mountains of manuscripts, which George Nash, Nash has done Uh, Yeoman's work in putting it all together and organizing it and putting it in very interesting and readable form. So, um, what you know about the 1930s and 40s and uh, early to mid 50s in American political history and American foreign policy, um, you can add this to your store of knowledge because it really is full of interesting. Uh, stories and uh, not so well known should be well known, and a lot of interesting and acute observations about the events and personalities of the era. Our final piece before John's uh, John Podhoritz's uh, movie review is a an essay by Peter Tonget on Doonesbury. Doonesbury is uh, entering into one of its periodic um, uh, suspension phases where newspapers are now publishing uh, classic Doonesbury instead of new Dunsbury cartoons. I have always felt personally that Gary Trudeau and Dunsbury are a little bit like uh, Bruce Springsteen in that modern newspapers um, simply, there must be something in the United States code which prevents newspapers from saying anything the least bit critical about these People. The only thing you read about them is how wonderful they are, and my suspicion is that not every American um, shares that view. And Doonesbury, in particular, since since it debuted in 1970, has had nearly a half century run of of utterly uncritical praise um, and and um, fawning uh, coverage in the press. And Peter Tunget, a frequent contributor to our pages, um, takes a somewhat contrarian view, and it's especially uh, credible in my view, because he started out in his uh, errant youth as an admirer and follower of Doonesbury as a boy, and then, of course, with time came wisdom and insight and judgment, and he delivers a a thoroughly um, uh, damning but delightfully funny and very perceptive analysis of Doonesbury as both a cartoon and as a cultural artifact of our times. I, uh, once again, I can't recommend it more highly than I do. Um, John Podhortz this week looks at um, X-Men Days of Future Past I have to confess, I read John's reviews about movies like this um, largely as an intellectual exercise. Um, I've never seen any of the X-Men franchise, and this seems to be the the seventh installment. And movies of that type don't especially appeal to me. I hope they appeal to you, in which case you'll find the review uh, interesting for reasons other than I found it interesting. I found it interesting just because John... Takes on the question of how do you take a franchise like the X-Men, X-Men movies and produce three, four, five, six uh, sequels to the original. Um, his verdict is that, in, in short, it's it's not so easy. And this particular installment really only has, in in John's view, one scene that that uh, justifies the movie as a whole. But it's an interesting view of of a phenomenon that is alas increasingly dominant in Hollywood these these surreal super movies with superheroes and whatnot that as I say unfortunately I'm uh uh not uh, uh, terribly well acquainted with them but but they are artifacts of our time and John as always is very shrewd and wise in his description of why they become what they are, why they become popular and how you can tell when, when the franchise is showing uh, signs of age and maybe it's time for some other trend to take root in Hollywood so on that uh, cinematic note uh, I will end for this week and look forward to talking to you again a week from now about next week's Books and Arts issue in the Weekly Standard. Thank you